Good afternoon. My name is Deborah Blanks, and it is my honor to welcome you to Princeton University's annual observance celebrating the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., the 20th century prophet and most well-known champion of the civil rights movement. Each year, the MLK Planning Committee works diligently to make this program an amazing success. Please join me in thanking the chair and members, our chair, Lauren Robinson Brown, and members of the committee for bringing us to this day. We have been privileged to have the Princeton Day School, seventh and eighth grade choir, Trenton's Children's Chorus Covenant Singers, and Miss Rochelle. Ellis serenade us with songs that have moved us, stirred us, and caused our hearts to ascend to a higher place. And we wish to thank them for their contribution. <clears throat> Friends, there were many freedom songs during the Civil Rights Movement. I shall not be moved, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. But the song that became the anthem states, we shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. We celebrate with many throughout our nation on this day a man, a message, and a movement when we pause to honor and acknowledge the birth of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. King represented the best of America and in his living and dying, he challenged our country to live out the ideals upon which it was founded. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people without regard to racial, ethnic, cultural, or any other particular identity restriction was at the heart of his dream and hope. He understood that to overcome and live in peace meant that we must be free to live fully the lives that are uniquely ours. We have gathered in this auditorium to celebrate the melodious music of the life of Martin Luther King Jr. that continues to inspire and challenge us to believe that all things are possible and that the someday might just be today. Welcome. It is my privilege to present one whose dream of a university community that honors the humanity and upholds the dignity of all of its members is the rallying call every day. Please join me in welcoming the 19th president of Princeton University, President Shirley M. Tillman. Good afternoon, everyone. It is wonderful to see a standing room only crowd for this celebration this afternoon. I want to thank all of you for coming today to help us celebrate the legacy of the doctor, of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the role of music in his quest for social justice. For 16 years, this event has helped to keep the spirit of Dr. King alive on our campus and in our local schools long after his prophetic voice was silenced by an assassin's bullet. 
to all who have contributed their time and talents to make our celebration a success today, I would like to extend my warmest thanks. I would also like to welcome our guest speaker, Professor Daphne Brooks from the Princeton's Department of English and our new Center for African American Studies. As you are about to hear, she is a gifted scholar who has chronicled the liberating power of popular performance in the African-American experience. I would also like to extend an extraordinary warm welcome to jazz guitarist extraordinaire Stanley Jordan of the class of 1981. and the combined school choirs that have performed so beautifully for us this afternoon. And especially to all the students who have honored Dr. King and the principles for which he stood through this year's essay, poster, and video contest. Finally, I'm pleased to acknowledge the presence of a number of our neighbors in the community who serve us in public office. I'd like to begin with Congressman Rush Holt, our wonderful congressman from Mercer County. <laughs> congressman Holt really does allow us here to have bumper stickers that say, my congressman is a rocket scientist. I would also like to wear, welcome Mayor Cecilia Burge and Deputy Mayor Louise Wilson, both from Montgomery Township. Welcome. <laughs> Judith Wilson, the Superintendent of the Public Regional School System. and Councilman Andrew Coons of the Princeton Borough Council. Andrew, welcome. We are delighted that all of you could be with us today to join in our celebration. As the compelling entries in our essay poster and video contest demonstrate, music has the power to capture the convictions and emotions that underpinned the civil rights movement and other struggles for social justice. Songs like We Shall Overcome, I Shall Not Be Moved, and Oh Freedom are filled with hope and resolution, transcending racial differences and inspiring both the singer and the listener to imagine and work toward a more perfect union. Indeed, Dr. King described the freedom songs that he and his comrades sang as the soul of the civil rights movement. As he put it, they are more than just incantations of clever phrases designed to invigorate a campaign. They are as old as the history of the Negro in America. We sing the freedom songs for the same reasons the slaves sang them, because we too are in bondage and the songs add hope to our determination that we shall overcome black and white together. We shall overcome someday. Even now, 
almost 40 years after his death, we need to take these words to heart, for the work of Dr. King remains undone. It is true we have made great strides since the days of official segregation, when men like Bull Connor used the power of the state to break up peaceful protest. But injustice, prejudice, and inequality still scar our nation. For many Americans, the dream that Dr. King articulated with such eloquence and courage is obscured by deep racial, social, and economic divisions. As he would be the first to tell us, we have not yet reached the promised land. And so Martin Luther King Day is more than a national holiday, more than a time of remembrance. It is a call to embrace Dr. King's example and in word and deed and song, let freedom ring. I now invite Roger Mason of the class of 2008 to introduce our guest speaker. Good afternoon. My name is Roger Mason and I am a member of the class of 2008. This afternoon, it is my honor and pleasure to introduce to this podium our keynote speaker, Professor Daphne A. Brooks. I first met Professor Brooks when I was a freshman three years ago, and upon first meeting, I discovered that Professor Brooks and I shared a question, a question that writer and scholar W.E.B. Du Bois asked a hundred years before we met, and a question that she would return to in her recent work, Bodies in Descent, Spectacular Performances of Race and Freedom. How do we articulate and narrate the experience of double consciousness, this feeling of two-ness of being both an American and a Negro? How might Afro-Americans use this dissonant condition to forge discursive as well as embodied insurgency. For me, this question was not just the question of race, but the question of intellectual and artistic selfhood. How would I, as a freshman at Princeton University, interested in the intrigue of the English language and the magic of African-American life, find home here at this place? And through her tutelage, she piqued my interest in performance as a site for the marriage of language and life. She instilled in me the joy of art, the joy of music, the joy of writing as a means of rewriting history, in particular the history of African life on American soil, bringing to the surface those narratives buried at the bottom of the historical troves. And she ensured that I would never ask the question that Cato posed in William Wells Brown's 1857 play, The Escape, A Leap for Freedom. Cato asks, I wonder if this is me. I golly, I is as free as a frog, but maybe I is mistaken. Maybe this ain't me. Thank you, Professor Brooks, for teaching us all to believe in ourselves and never question if this is me. 
and helping us to cross the bridge and leap to freedom. Please give me a warm round of applause and give Professor Brooks a, a warm round of applause. <laughs> Professor Brooks. I love that, though. The insurgent black female voice. First, I have to say um, thank you. Thank you to President Tellman. Thank you to Dean uh, Pastor Blanks, to Lauren Robinson Brown for extending this invitation to me and the rest of the King Day Committee, to um, the entire staff of Richardson, particularly Jim Allington. He and I are going to have a bonding experience playing music this afternoon for you all. And especially to Roger Quincy Mason, who... Um, gave such a stirring and, and lovely introduction. It was absolutely moving. Thank you so much. So it's a pleasure to have this opportunity today to discuss the music of progressive movements and specifically the civil rights movement. And now we need some sound. Anyone, <laughs> anyone who's seen the current mega musical Dreamgirls is aware of the fact that the high point of the film and perhaps the only reason to see the film, poor, poor Beyonce, is to hear Jennifer, Hudson's, Jennifer Hudson deliver her sky-touching rendition, and, then, and I am telling you, I'm not going, an extended, show-stopping vocal performance that, as one critic puts it, simply stops time. But really, though, we might think of this scene as a moment which affirms and celebrates the black singing voice in historical time. Dreamgirls begins in the midst of the civil rights 60s. It even features, features a vocal cameo by none other than Martin Luther King Jr. And in spite of the fact that the film glosses over the complexities of contemporary black historical change, with Hudson's gut-riching vocals as its centerpiece, it is perhaps the most stirring pop cultural tribute to the efforts of civil rights activism in recent memory. Hudson's performance majestically reinforces literary critic Lyndon Barrett's powerful contention that the singing voice sounds of the most enduring of African-American testimonies to the exigencies of our presence in the Americas. Her performance reminds us of the ways that movement activists asserted their will to be seen and heard using their voices powerfully, assertively, and creatively. Music has, of course, been central to African-American resistance movements since the era of slavery. Think of Negro spirituals such as Steal Away and Go Down Moses alone as evidence of black music's ability to serve as a form of secret communication for the enslaved, a site of community building, as a self-making form of expression, as a way to reach spatially upward, as the late historian Lawrence Levine has put it, to communicate with the heavens and to stretch temporally backward to touch the lives of mythic ancestors. In slavery, musical expression has served for African Americans as a form of religious testimony and as a resistant articulation of historical consciousness. It has, in many cases, been the freest space in which to speak openly of the afflictions of bondage and the longing for freedom. 
the songs of the civil rights movement mark an overt continuity with the liberation themes expressed in divinely revolutionary music from the previous century. King himself recalled the mighty ring and swelling, swelling chorus of onward Christian soldier belted out as a resolve by the crowds packed into Montgomery's Holt Street Baptist Church on the night of Rosa Parks' arrest in 1955 became known, as one historian describes it, as the contemporary freedom anthem of the bus boycott. And I could use that. Just as critical to these communal gatherings were new songs that manifested the purposeful revisionist ideals of movement activists. For instance, it was not uncommon for King and others to offer new hymns set to familiar music and directed toward the urgent agenda at hand. Nation journalist Alfred Bond recalls watching King present, present on one occasion a new song set to the tune of old-time religion with lyrics declaring that we are moving on to victory with hope and dignity. We will all stand together until we all are free. As Mond would see it, the new borrowed from the old in the midst of movement activity and this new, determina- new determination to achieve racial equality was the very essence of the boycott. At the heart of the youth movement, young women and men, college students, high school students, and community workers who put their lives on the line to transform American social structures. At the heart of this movement were individuals who utilized song as a means to improvise a will to power in the face of the most brutal and dehumanizing situations. Song leaders of these youthful activist groups charges who were responsible for keeping energy and spirits high were often known to add lyrics peculiar to their immediate situation. So for instance, songs sung in Selma, Alabama or Jackson, Mississippi might include local names or symbols or what or whomever they were specifically fighting. Songs directly addressing the obtuse nature of Governor Falbus or Governor Wallace were not uncommon during this time. One young activist, Mary Ethel Dozier, who would go on to become a highly regarded song leader figure in the movement, describes the centrality of music as a nonviolent weapon on the protest battlefield in Montgomery. Dozier recalls, quote, We would make up songs. All the songs I remember gave us strength to go on. It was kind of spontaneous. If somebody started beating us over the head with a billy club, we would start singing about the billy club, or either the person's name would come out in a song. What these anecdotes should remind us of is how we ought to think of King and more broadly broadly this generation of brave and wondrous activists as bold architects and arrangers of radical and revisionist sound that served as spiritual safety zones of sorts for marchers who faced everyday danger and as a form of spontaneous social documentation that caught and preserved history-making events in song. It was a sound that galvanized the masses. Perhaps no figure from the civil rights movement era encapsulated the centrality of song as activism more than Fannie Lou Hamer. A 44-year-old sharecropper, when she became a volunteer in the voter registration drive in Mississippi, Hamer, of course, weathered being beaten and jailed as a result of her efforts on the front lines of the movement in one of the most violent areas of the South. 
Hamer was a viscerally powerful and moving public speaker who drew from sacred scripture in shaping her public proclamations and who equally invoked song as a way of connecting with her audiences. Indeed, she was known to often, if not always, to have begun her speeches with a song, and usually that song was This Little Light of Mine. Here, Hamer sings uh, Walk With Me, Lord, a spiritual that was basic to the repertoire of rural black Baptist congregations. singing activism and activist singing alone provide evidence of the ways that songs operated in the movement as a means to renew one's faith, to replenish one's spirit, and to forge a sense of material protection via musical spirituality. These songs help to push back fear and to express years of suppressed hope, suffering, as well as joy and love. As scholar, singer, and movement activist Bernice Johnson Reagan has put it so eloquently, the sound of the collective voice was an aural witness as thousands who offered their bodies and often risked their lives moved within the sound of their singing. From familiar Christian hymns to newly circulated grassroots folk songs, civil rights movement activists developed a broad repertoire of musical material as forms of resistance and tools of empowerment. Clearly the most well-known song of which versions traveled from the church in the early 20th century to the post-war labor movement, from the folk music world of musicians such as Pete Seeger, to the very center of the civil rights struggle was We Shall Overcome, sung here by the influential SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Freedom Singers, a group that featured Bernice Johnson Regan, as well as her future husband, Cordell Regan. We shall Robinson noted in his 
recollection of singing we shall overcome, quote, you really have to experience it in action to understand the kind of power it had for us. When you got through singing it, you could walk over a bed of hot coals and you wouldn't feel it. Robinson's words underscore the power of this music to move, to provide movement, to promote and create change and a feeling of transcendence internally in activists that in turn assisted them in creating an external world anew. Just as critically, at the height of this revolution, popular musicians, entertainers, and recording artists emerged alongside community leaders, students, politicians, and everyday citizens to create their own brand of music aimed at moving the masses. At the 1963 March on Washington alone, folkies like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary stood alongside classical vocalist Marian Anderson, gospel legend Mahalia Jackson, and the SNCC Freedom Singers to hear King utter some of the most famous ideas about American dreaming ever recorded. Artists such as gospel soul group The Staple Singers, R&B pioneer Curtis Mayfield, who in 1964, and inspired by the march, recorded the elegantly stirring call to action, People Get Ready. The Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, who sang of personal respect that reverberated with the humanist tenets of the movement. Jazz troubadours Thelonious Monk, Charles Mingus, Abby Lincoln, and pop singer Tony Bennett additionally participated in benefit concerts to support civil rights reform. These musicians conceived of their work as contributing to the seeds of social transformation. Without a doubt, though, no popular recording artist in the 1960s, 1960s was more centrally involved in producing music as the touchstone for insurgent civil rights, as well as black nationalist cultural reform, than the late, great Nina Simone. Simone often talked about how important it was for her to maintain an integrated musical repertoire, to not be pigeonholed musically. She once stated to a reporter that, quote, it's always been my aim to stay outside any category. That's my freedom. In her 1964 resistance anthem, Mississippi Goddamn, that's the title of it for some of you who are too young to know that, Simone passionately exposes the limits of American freedom, even as she affirms her own brand of freedom in song. Written by the artist immediately in the wake of the 1963 church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, in which four school-age African-American girls were murdered while attending Sunday school, Mississippi Goddamn remains one of the most powerful pop music protest songs of the civil rights era, or any era of that matter. And it uses irony as a central tool to critique the persistent Southern segregationist terror endured by African-Americans even in the midst of the evolving movement. This version of the song that we're about to hear was recorded on April 7, 1968, so just four days after the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. You love, and of course, a couple of years ago, four little girls were killed. Alabama and at that time we got the inspiration to do this song but Dr. King's murder has left me so numb I don't know where I'm at really 
course you heard this song that was composed by Gene Taylor especially for today but I hope that between now and the end of the year it'll all be together enough that we will have songs that go down in history for these wonderful brave people who are no longer with us Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn Alabama's got me so upset Lurleen Wallace has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn Can't you see it? I know you can feel it It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama has got me so upset And Memphis has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn In early versions of this song, Simone would declare that this is a show tune but the show hasn't been written for it yet. Simone evokes the sound of traditional music theater songs from productions like Showboat, South South Pacific, Carousel, Guys and Dolls. She repeats that familiar sound of American Broadway culture, but at the same time empties out the traditional show tune musical content, replacing it with a narrative that sounds nothing like Old Man River. Hound dogs on my trail, school children sitting in jail, black cat cross my path. I think every day is going to be my last. This is hardcore. Nas could learn a thing or two from Nina Simone. Mississippi Goddamn sings a song of blacks' political, socio-political outrage. It gives voice to the experience of civil rights workers threatened by hound dogs, imprisonment, police brutality. It gives voice to the utter, utter discontent of African Americans living under subjugation and Jim Crow oppression. And it travels with a disillusioned Simone the singer as she heads down south to document her and her people who were just about through washing windows and picking cotton. Simone was joined in her radically radical vocalizing by the recently departed godfather of soul, James Brown, and of course his 1968 musical manifesto, Say It Loud, I'm, I'm Black and I'm Proud, a song that has been in recent weeks lauded as one of the most overt expressions of black pride articulated in the late 60s, and a critical artistic expression that helped to launch the black cultural nationalism that would flourish in the late 60s and early 70s. We should equally recognize Simone and Brown as genius composers and arrangers in addition to being singular performers. In the case of the latter, Brown's radical decision to shift around the fundamental beat in popular music to the one, as critics have noted, led to a rhythmic revolution, a movement in rhythm that led to the creation of new musical genres from funk to hip-hop. What's more, James Brown's uncanny ability to articulate a deep visceral joy and sensual pleasure through urgent, intense, and supremely innovative vocalizing and dance was in and of itself an emotional movement evoked by the beat that provided the soundtrack to massive socio-political upheaval of this era. 
He wrote, sang, and performed pop music freedom songs that located liberation more than ever before in the body and on the dance floor. The multiple ways of sounding black progressive insurgency in popular music would reverberate throughout this era. We should think, too, of Jimi Hendrix's bold 1969 reinterpretation of the Star-Spangled Banner at Woodstock, laced with achingly dissonant guitar feedback, an anti-war statement that exploded the uniformity of the anthem. But as many critics have noted, in the wake of the 60s, increasingly black musical protests were produced outside of the context of sustained social movements on the scale of the civil rights revolution. While the early 1970s Motown's uh, Temptations sang about a ball of confusion and chaos in the streets, and the West Coast funk hippie outfit sly and the family stone celebrated the multicultural tolerance of everyday people, while the black feminist group LaBelle sang of racial and gender equality, and Gil Scott Heron and others such as Nikki Giovanni and the Last Poets foreshadowed the rap revolution still to come and declared that the revolution would not be televised. The music of black social reform became less visible as the landscape of black popular culture expanded in the 1970s. Three artists, Marvin Gaye, Isaac Hayes, and Stevie Wonder, best encapsulated the ideals of activist music and music created to inspire new moves in social and political life. Gaye, with his classic album, What's Going On, an R&B masterpiece that produced incisive anti-war, black power, and youth activist commentary set to lush, lush soul, soul ballads. Akin to Gay, another activist musician of the era, Isaac Hayes, made use of smooth and elegant symphonic arrangements to create a sprawling soundtrack to accompany the big, ominous industrial change of post-civil rights life in the city on tracks such as the theme from Shaft. Wonder, of course, is the reason why we're all here today, having emerged as a key figure in the 1980s movement to turn Dr. King's birthday into a national holiday celebration. But it remains critical to keep in mind the kind of rigorous political work that he produced in an astoundingly compressed period of time in the early to mid-1970s, 1972's Talking Book, 1973's Inner Visions, 1974's Fulfilling This First Finale, and 1976's Songs in the Key of Life. Make sure to get that on your iPod. These key recordings brought together some of the most remarkably rich, vivid, and complex observations about race, class, and American life that had ever been put on vinyl. Stevie Wonder is also in many ways the bridge between the 1970s and the world of the 1980s socially conscious pop scene that I embraced as a post-civil rights teenager, just revealed my age, growing up in Northern California. It was during that era of the mid-80s, while contemplating dyeing my hair purple and immersing myself in the punk and new wave protest music of The Clash, The Police, and U2, and the Minneapolis racial gender funk revolution of Prince that I watched what crystallized into the most glamorous high-profile manifestations of pop music activism. From British artists forming the one-off supergroup Band-Aid, do they know it's Christmas anymore, to raise money for African famine survivors, to the Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones orchestrated all-star opus We Are, we Are the World, and the lesser-known and perhaps much more uh, powerful multi-artist anti-apartheid anthem Sun City featuring Bruce Springsteen and others. To the four lads from Dublin, you too, penning pride in the name of love, an affectionate eulogy for King himself. While the long-term social impact of that conscious raising pop, consciousness raising pop in the midst of the Reagan era is hard to gauge, 
On a personal level, that music and the passionate ideals attached to that era left an indelible mark on me and instilled in me the lasting belief that rock and roll, and I'm using that term broadly, rock and roll could at the very least encourage an intellectual and political self-reckoning. Watching the Live Aid concert by satellite, dreaming of riding shotgun in a fast car with Tracy Chapman, joining Amnesty International and rocking out at benefit concerts by Sting and Bono, memorizing every single line of public enemy's fear of a black planet, joining the Black Rock Coalition revolution and following the African-American hard rock band Living Colors' earnest fight for integration in popular music itself. All of these experiences shaped my political ideals as a young adult and helped to build an ideological bridge between the generation of my parents, former Bay Area civil rights activists themselves, and my own. As I look at my nieces and nephews and my students today, I often wonder what constitutes protest music for them in the 21st century. Certainly Young Jock, Dim Franchise Boys, Fall Out Boy, and My Chemical Romance are all engaged in their own forms of resistant music of some kind, and perhaps even some form of social change. Meet me at the mall. It's going down. But, but in my opinion, ironically, it's the veteran rockers, you too, from my youth that have emerged as one half of one of the most significant and politically resonant moments in recent pop music memory. Anyone who saw the multi-network Hurricane Katrina Relief Concert Telethon in the fall of 2004 was witness to a stunning spectacle of subtle and yet incredibly inspired protest pop. To be sure, the transformation of U2's 1990s hit single, One, into a duet with Yonkers, hard scrabble, hard singing, sometimes hard on the ears, R&B diva Mary J. Blige, opened up a space to make rich, powerful, multi-layered references to the complex intersections of race, gender, and class embedded in the Katrina catastrophe. Can I get that a little lower? Called by one fan in the wake of the performance, the most intriguing and wistful cover tune since Johnny Cash covered Nine Inch Nails Hurt, Blage and U2's telethon performance of One is perhaps the most insurgent political work of a black female pop singer since the era of Nina Simone. Blage's performance of this song in, the, in this context, at this moment in time, opens up the historical value of Bono and company's lyrics and musical arrangements. Easing her way around guitarists that edges exile and Main Street, Beggar's Banquet era, Rolling Stone riffs, Blige steps into the rock pantheon here in a moment that musically resonates with the exposed erasures and absences, the erasure of a black female artist from rock and roll culture, and most critically and urgently, the absence conjoined with the spectacular presence of black female suffering in American culture, which my colleague Professor Melissa Harris-Lacewell reads as the urtext of the national disaster, Hurricane Katrina. As Professor Harris-Lacewell makes plain in her brilliant new work on the politics of black female citizenship in American culture, quote, Black women were at the center of this literal and rhetorical storm. Television news and popular news magazines used images of desperate, frightened, and suffering African-American women to dramatize the tragedy facing the residents of New Orleans as they battled the aftermath of the hurricane with little assistance from official authorities, end quote. Within this brutally charged context, Mary J. Blige and U2's duet performance of One highlights the unheralded position of black women in rock and roll culture, the unheralded position of black women in America, 
and the violence of dominant political neglect and discrimination in the wake of the hurricane, all of this comes to surface in this performance. Never before has Mary J. Blige's tonal eccentricities been put to more powerful use. Did I disappoint you, Blige begins, or leave a bad taste in your mouth? That trademark rough around the edges, is my girl really singing off-key delivery? Serves Blige most powerfully in this tale where the black female voice of dissonance and disappointment observes wryly of the man who conserves his compassion that you act like you never had love and you want me to go without Blodge plays here the role of the fighting survivor, a character she's carefully crafted over her decade-plus career. No doubt, she's cultivated a loner in high heels persona with great care, and here in one, she channels that iconography into an interventionist anthem that champions the preservation of difference and specificity as a fecund site for coalition building. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. Blodgeer rejects crawling in the temple of love, the temple of democracy, demanding instead a recognition of her worth as a black female citizen in this contract with America. Blodgeer's performance reminds us then that here at the dawn of the 21st century, the music of social change, the soundtrack of King's spirit is indeed alive and well. And the torch is carried forward in some of the most unlikely places. Where will the next musical revolution take root? How about Dave Chappelle? Who would have thought that the half-baked superstar comedian would extend the dream of musical performance as brilliantly as he did in the 2004 concert and 2005 film Dave Chappelle's Block Party, a musical event staged in Brooklyn and featuring upstart progressive hip-hop artists such as Dead Prez, Mostef and Talib Kweli, black feminist singer-songwriters Jill Scott, Erica Badu, Lauren Hill, and the Fugees, and many others. Block Party harkens back to the landmark 1972 Watt Stacks concert and the 1973 concert film of the same name, which featured numerous entertainers and politicians, from Isaac Hayes and comic legend Richard Pryor to Jesse Jackson, celebrating the resilience of Los Angeles urban communities in the wake of the 1965 Watts riot. And while Block Party may not wear its politics as overtly on its sleeves as Watt Stacks does, it is a film that, like its predecessor, values and embraces the culturally rejuvenating, life-affirming energy of black music as the fulcrum of community organizing and and development. Watch as grandstanding hip-hop braggadocio Kanye West spits the lyrics, very briefly, since we're running out of time, to his post-civil rights anthem, Jesus Walks, while the historically black college, Central State University's marching band promenades through the streets of Bed-Stuy.
how to right my wrongs. Yeah, yeah, I wanna talk to God, but I'm afraid because we ain't spoken so long. Like the rest of West's debut album, College Dropout, the song Jesus Walks charts a psychological, moral, and ethic, carnal, and existential crisis on the part of its protagonist that ultimately gets resolved by conjoining hip-hop with an intense identification with the gospel narrative, salvation, resurrection, transfiguration, tropes that clearly extend King's theologically progressive activism into a new era. We might hope for more block parties in the years to come as we continue to march through our current era seemingly unending war, poverty, and an African AIDS pandemic that demands our attention. And we might look to a new generation of musical activists to lead those parties. They may come from the drumline of Central State University, or, if we can have that image right quick, they may just as well come from a glorious place like the Willie Mae Rock Camp for Girls, an organization named after, after African-American rock and blues pioneer Big Mama Thornton and a camp at which I taught this past summer. Here's hoping that the next revolution is already underway at Willie Mae, where music for a new movement for a new generation and embodied by girls ages 8 to 18 of all colors, multiple religions from all over the world, and who are armed with bass, drums, guitars, keyboards, two turntables and a microphone, are ready to change the world and ready to turn up the volume so that we can hear, feel, nod your head, and rock out King's message in stereo for years and years to come. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Brooks, for that profoundly moving message. Let's give her another round of applause. It's been a wonderful program. I'm Lauren Robinson-Brown, the MLK Committee Convener and Director of Communications for the University. And I have the privilege of introducing this year's student contest winners. Each year, the committee is greatly impressed with the quality of entries and the depth of understanding these students articulate through their studies of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. This year, we were particularly enthused by the number of siblings who entered, and several parents even told us how much they've enjoyed using this opportunity as a family educational experience. As such, we want to give all of our student contest entrants more of a chance to participate and work on their projects. I am pleased to announce that next year's theme will focus on immigration, and we hope to have the complete contest rules on the website by next month. Judging was a pleasure this year, as we read hundreds of essays, listened to dozens of songs, and viewed many posters and special video pro projects, all focused on the music of human rights movements. Students touched upon themes close to home, such as many of those we've heard about today, and experiences in their own schools, to faraway places, including movements in India and Ireland. They revealed more about King than many of us knew, and they created original work inspired by the civil rights struggle. At the beginning of today's program, the slide presentation that you saw was created by second place video contest winner Brandon King. And we're also in a few minutes going to hear the original song composed by first prize winner Monica Hanoush. So now, let's meet 
our student honorees. The students are going to line up by category and will step forward as I introduce each by name. If no one steps forward, it means that that student could not join us today. But they may be watching online as we acknowledge their achievement. Please hold your applause until we have announced all of the winners in each category. Presenting the poster contest honorees, receiving honorable mention, Shafali Ray, grade 6, Melvin H. Kreps Middle School. Tucker Stevenson, grade 4, Johnson Park. Uriel Teva, grade 5, American Boys, Boy Choir. Matthew Filippini, grade 5, Hollenbrook. Taylor Filippini, grade 6, Reddington Middle. Kirsten Carter, grade 5, Stewart Country Day School of the Sacred Heart. And Julia Simondi, grade 6, John Witherspoon. Third place goes to Dieter DeCorda, grade 6, Princeton Academy of the Sacred Heart. The second place winner is Emily Evans, grade 5, Stewart. And our first prize winner is Eric Ferenzi, grade 5, Hollenbrook School. Congratulations to you all. And if we can do this while the 7th and 8th grade honorees are entering the contest, we're going to see if we can cue up Monica's song. Receiving honorable mention, Ann Evans, grade 7, Stewart. Amina Gomez, grade 7, St. Rose of Lima Catholic Elementary School. David Hume, grade 8, Princeton Academy. Prathi Isola, grade 7, Witherspoon. Beth Ann Johnson, grade 8, Stewart. Natalie Ortega, grade 7, Kreps. And Emily, Emily Schroudenbach, grade 8, Cranberry School. The third prize winner is Vaughn Powell, grade 8, Link Community School. Second prize goes to Brooke Ferenzi, grade 7, Reddington. And first place is a tie between Michael Carter, grade 8, Princeton Academy, and Monica Hanoush, grade 8, Stewart. So Monica, why don't you come join me? for the ninth and 10th grade essay, honorable mention, 10th grader Erin Burns, Stewart. 
Ninth grader, Alyssa Dittmar Stewart. Ninth grader, Sasunk Isola, Princeton High School. Ninth grader, Linda Ma, West Windsor Plainsboro High School North. Tenth grader, Haley Schoner Stewart. Ninth grader, Siraj Sinha of Montgomery High School. And tenth grader, Kate Wiles of Stewart. The third prize winners are tenth grader, Andrea Kravitz of Villa Victoria Academy. And ninth grader, Denisha Jackson Stewart. The second prize winner is ninth grader Caroline Collins of Stewart, and the first prize winner is ninth grader Justin Miles Heron of Montclair High School. Congratulations. Now we're turning to the 11th and 12th grade honorees in the essay contest. All of the honorable mentions in this category are from Stewart, and they are Rebecca Cook, grade 12, Heather Hunstein, grade 11, Rains Plainbeck, grade 11, Dominique Rice, grade 11, and Claire Wiles, grade 11. We have a three-way tie for third place in this category. Laura Brown, grade 12, Stewart, Sarah Rich, grade 11, Stewart, and Prerna Sinha, grade 11, of Montgomery. Second prize is awarded to 11th grader Caitlin DeSalvo of Red Bank Catholic High School. And our first prize honoree is Glennis Carney, grade 11 Stewart. Congratulations. We received a record number of video entries this year, and this category covers grades 7 through 12. Our honorable mentions are Nicholas Tancredi, grade 12, Middlesex County Vocational and Technical High School, Maria Diamico and Anna Grosshans, grade 8 of Stewart, Charlotte Lanassa, grade 7 of Stewart, and Daniel McCulloch, grade 10 of Franklin High School. The third prize goes to Nicole Portrid, grade 8 of Kreps. The second prize winner is Brandon King, grade 8, Demasi Middle School. And for three years running, first prize is shared by twin sisters, Alex and Izzy Kasdan of Princeton High School. Congratulations. Let's have one more round of applause for all of our students, their parents, teachers, and mentors. Good afternoon again. I wish to congratulate all of our winners, teachers, and families who have joined us. A word of thanks to President Tillman for your continued commitment to equity, to Professor Brooks for your powerful words, Stanley Jordan, class of 81, a moving music master, and to the Princeton Day School 7th and 8th grade choirs, the Trenton Choir, Children's Chorus Covenant Singers, and Miss Rochelle Ellis for your wonderful music. Dr. King often spoke of the beloved community, and as I look at this packed auditorium, it reminds me of how we are living out that dream. 
And so we want to thank all of you for coming. We want to give everyone a round of applause. And to conclude today's program, the choirs and Rochelle Ellis would like to perform Lift Every Voice and Sing. All righty. Ms. Rochelle Ellis. <laughs> Oh, no.
Again, thank you for coming, and this concludes our program.